Tell us a little bit about what you saw and, and, and being able to relay that message to Cora when you watched Kimbrell pitch and, and kind of help out so he wasn't uh, tipping his pitches. So tipping pitches, we hear about it all the time. People at home understand what tipping pitches is all about. It's amazing. Man. And that's remarkable. Now, Alex, I know we usually start the podcast with jokes, but I want to start the podcast by talking about something very serious today. I want to start the podcast by talking about baseball. I thought maybe we could just do a hot 10 minutes on the likelihood of the Mets or the Braves to win the NL East. What do you think? I'm going to need to do some preparation first and probably watch so some go baseball. And then come back yeah. and then start recording again. Uh-huh. No, just kidding. I want to start by talking about Queen Elizabeth. <laughs> what else would we start this baseball podcast out? I mean, we would be remiss about. if we if we did not mention this. I mean, if we did not mention this, we would be the only figures in the baseball world to not mention it, apparently. Yeah. <laughs> I mean, I know she came to one baseball game in the 1990s, but like, come on. <laughs> I mean, her shadow looms large over the game. Right? In what I, way? Explain that. Say more. Um, you know, a, a, a steadfast refusal to change mm. uh, in the face of cultural growth. Right. So your argument is that she's sort of like a template for what baseball has modeled itself after. Right. Okay. I see it. I like it. I like where your head's at. I mean, you can't say that Major League Baseball doesn't have imperial, imperialist tendencies. <laughs> And imperialist desires, you know? Yeah, exactly. A refusal to give up on them, you could say. Yeah. Um, the thing that I wanted to note and dialogue with you about was something that our friend Bradford William Davis tweeted. He tweeted a, an image at the New York Yankees game of a memorial on the Jumbotron, the big screen there. And then he followed up and said that at that game, that they decided to have a moment of silence and they asked the crowd to stand up and remove their caps. They asked the crowd at the New York Yankees game (laughs) to stand up and have a moment of silence and remove their caps for the Queen of England. I just wanted to get your thoughts, you know. You could get Yankees fans to do so much (laughs) if you just put it on the Jumbotron. Well, you could. But, like, the thing that's confusing is I feel like Yankees fans have a lot of pride over being the Yankees. Right. And the Yankees were sort of like the whole thing that undermined the monarchy. Right. <laughs> like the biggest success story against the monarchy, arguably. I I mean, maybe they just wanted to tip their cap to to the crown, you know? You had a good run. Good good job. Good effort. I think it's just proof to me that the Yankees are not America's team. <laughs> exactly. The New York Mets, on the other hand, no, they also had a moment I love, of silence. I love <laughs> Is there any baseball team that didn't have a moment of silence? That's a good question, actually. We need to do some boots on the ground reporting about this. We'll get back to you next week. I love that they had them remove their caps. Right. Like, by asking folks to do the same gesture that you do during the, say, national anthem, Mm -hmm. are you equating the weight of the national anthem and the Queen of England dying? Do you know why caps are disrespectful? I don't have the answer. I'm actually asking you. Do you know like why we always have to remove our hats? I don't. I mean, is it a sign of respect to 
take down that wall and show everyone your hat hair, you think? <laughs> I mean, I think it probably has something to do with, like, letting people actually see your face, you know? Like, in the old days, you remove your cap when you walk into an establishment so that, so that you know, you're actually presenting your, your full self. Is that true, or did you just make that up? It sounds right, it doesn't sounds, it? That sounds pretty good. Yeah, I like yeah. that. You have to remove your cap to prove that you're not, like, an outlaw. <laughs> right. <laughs> you, just, you remove your cap and you stand next to the posters, the wanted posters, <laughs> and they say, okay, you're allowed in the establishment. You know, it's like they don't check your ID because you could just drink when you were, like, seven back in the old days. Right. I like it. Maybe it was like you have to be this tall to get on the ride <laughs> to enter the saloon. <laughs> um, well, if you're a fan of a baseball team and you know for certain that your team did not have a moment of silence and did not acknowledge the queen in any way, shape, or form, please let us know by calling our voicemail. Who these traitors are. By calling our voicemail, 785-422-5881, writing to us at tippingpitchespod at gmail.com. I think we've made enough uh, monarchy jokes. It was one of the best days on Twitter in a very, very long time. It was pretty remarkable. <laughs> yeah. I. It's kind of funny how like momentous days in history for me are marked by like, how much I enjoyed being on Twitter that day. Right. I saw a lot of people being like, power rank these two days on Twitter. Trump gets COVID. <laughs> Queen Elizabeth passes away. It's kind of 1A1B, right? I mean, yeah. Beautiful for such similar and different reasons. Mm-hmm. Um, I think one of the most momentous days for us on Twitter also happened recently. And that was when uh, Rob Manford just came out and said that he was going to voluntarily recognize the minor leaguers as part of the Major League Baseball Players Association. We are, of course, going to spend quite a bit of time talking about that. We will have a discussion with Trevor Hildenberger, who is currently with the San Jose Giants, has spent some time with the Twins and the Mets, is now in the Giants system. About that organizing effort, we're going to do a little rule rule change chat because we can be baited into yelling about these things just like everybody else can. But before we do all of that, I am Bobby Wagner. I am Alex Baisley. And you are listening to Tipping Pitches. Alex, before we start, a shout out to our new patrons this week. I'm just going to read these names slowly, and I want you to tell me if you see anything coincidental in them. New patrons this week, on the week that Queen Queen Elizabeth has passed. William, Baby Statesman, Camden, and Michael. (laughs) What are they trying to tell us? A distinctly British feel to those names. Am I wrong? Yeah. William, isn't isn't he the new heir now? He is, yeah. See, I got—I always get that wrong. I kind of thought he was the next king, and now there's a different one. Char- it's Charles. It is Charles. Is that who it is? Mm-hmm. So stupid. So <laughs> stupid. I don't even have anything funny to say. It's just so stupid. Baby Statesman, Camden, which is a place in, in England. Right. It's Michael. also, Camden is also uh, the name of the the ballpark that the team that Queen Elizabeth went to see would eventually play it. <laughs> You're so right. <laughs> Nobody is talking about Honestly. this. Nobody is talking about this. Thank you to those new patrons this week. Uh, we we very deeply appreciate your support in these trying times. Uh, I want to start this week's podcast out in earnest by playing some audio for you. What is the league's position on it, and do you plan to voluntarily recognize them? Yeah, um, we, I believe, um, notified the MLBPA today that we're prepared um, to execute an agreement on voluntary recognition. I think they're working on the language as we speak. Let's go! 
That was Commissioner Robert D. Manfred of Major League Baseball. Basically voluntarily recognizing the minor league players as part of the Major League Baseball Players Association. Yeah. I First of all, I want to say I love the phrasing here. We today, I believe, <laughs> let them know. Like, I can actually so relate to that. I'm like, I think, I thought I told you. He's a... Uh, right? I'm pretty sure, I'm pretty sure I told you. He's a lawyer, true and true. <laughs> he's always leaving himself a little wiggle room to get out of this, you yeah. know? Mm-hmm. Come on, Rob. Uh, what the hell, man? Yeah, what? What? No. What happened? Huh? How? How did this happen so fast? I don't, I, I don't know. We really didn't have enough faith in our man. Is it that we didn't have enough faith in our man, or is that we spoke so firmly that he decided he wanted to make a fool of us right. is a question that we need to ask ourselves here. Yeah. That we came out so strongly against the idea that Rob Manfred, who is no friend of labor, organized labor, we said it multiple times on our podcast last week with Eugene Friedman, that we said it so strongly that that he was just like, you know what? I'm going to throw him a curveball. <laughs> They're sitting dead red. I'm throwing him the, the hammer. This is, uh, this is our high-flying bird moment. You know? This is... This is where we scare him into coming to the table. Right, exactly. So, okay, a brief timeline of events, all of which happened this week. Tuesday, September 6th, the Major League Baseball Players Association requests voluntary recognition for over 5,000 new minor leaguers joining their bargaining unit. This came after Tony Clark said publicly that they had over 50% return rate of the union cards that they had passed out a couple Sundays ago that we eventually did our uh, emergency reaction podcast for. Uh, Wednesday, September 7th, the MLBPA joins the AFL-CIO, which is the federation of a lot of major unions in this country. They all gather under one umbrella to show solidarity with each other, to skill share, to share organizers, to share resources, that sort of thing. Friday, September 9th, that clip. Evan Drellick asked Rob Manfred in a press conference, former guest of the podcast, Evan Drellick, asks Rob Manfred in a press conference if MLB will consider voluntarily recognizing the union. And Rob says yes. So, okay. What do you think happened? Because it's obvious that Rob Manfred is not psyched about this. He's not like, this is what I've been waiting for since I became commissioner in 2015. If he had his druthers, none of this organizing would be happening. I don't think he necessarily in his heart of heart cares either way, whether the minor leaguers have union, have a union. I don't think Rob Manfred sits down at night and he's like, man, that salad picture was great. We need to keep, we need to keep that going, man. Minor leaguers sleeping in their cars is good. I don't think Rob man, honestly don't think Rob Manfred thinks that, but do you think that this is more so Rob acknowledging the inevitable? Or do you think that this is some kind of strategy, a larger do you think this is part of some kind of strategy, larger strategy on MLB's side to voluntarily recognize it now and then sort of like get their ducks in a row for the actual fight, which is the bargain? Right. I mean, I think it's a little bit of both, right? I mean, I think they probably recognized they could whip up a little goodwill with the coming union if they didn't immediately start things out on a bad foot by not recognizing them, right? And and going through this protracted um process cuz you know it's no secret that this is going to be a real struggle right the the fight is just beginning and i think the league probably recognized that their backs were against a wall a little bit they they have had this uh this 
lawsuit that was making its way through the courts for years that was that was settled back uh, earlier this year that indicated that they were violating wage laws in California and Arizona. They've got the the Senate Judiciary Committee kind of breathing down their necks about their treatment of minor leaguers. And I think they probably just recognize that the tenor of the conversation has changed a little bit, right? And I think they probably want to save their resources for what the fight is actually going to be. Like, my guess is that they probably had a pretty good idea that the MLBPA was going to have the votes for minor leaguers, right? Through whatever means of research they they do, whatever ears to the ground they have, they probably knew that this was the path of least resistance on on their end, rather than spending the next few weeks, months, waging what would probably be a fruitless PR war and be just one more stain on Manfred's legacy, which has quite a few already. Yeah, that's actually what roving hitting instructors have been doing the last 10 years or so since that became like a really <laughs> popular position. They just they're kind of getting the tenor of whether a minor league union is coming or not. <laughs> they're not actually helping uh, minor leaguers develop their bat to ball skills. <laughs> no, I think you're right. I, I'm glad that you brought up the Senate Judiciary Committee. You know, when we talk to Trevor later in this episode, he's going to bring up the lawsuit that you referenced as well as being one of the things that was really helpful in terms of organizing because it's something that you could concretely point to and say here's something that they did to everybody and here's a direct result of that action and us standing together and doing this in a class action form but the senate judiciary committee coming after their antitrust exemption just came at like a really terrible time i think because and i think that that's part of the calculation when a guy like tony clark gets up there and he says this is the right time for all of this, and it's the right group of players. The group of players that has banded together in the courts and has organized alongside advocates for minor leaguers coming right in this window where it's starting to become a little less politically palatable for these clubs to just operate unencumbered of these legal barriers that every other company in the entire world and in America has to face. And so I think that it's to me, almost like a strategic retreat from Rob and from MLB, where if they go scorched earth right now, there's a there's a chance that the Senate Judiciary Committee plays politics and makes an example out of them. Because honestly, that's how senators behave. You know, they they look around and they say, what is the thing that is going to win me the most political points right now? And if 30 billionaires are continuing to to stand their ground against the right to organize and and force them to go to an NLRB vote. And they clearly have the support and they're trying to join a union that already exists and is already a labor victory throughout history in the MLBPA. I think that that makes it that much more likely that the Senate Judiciary Committee just torches them, you know, and it comes completely after them. And so if Rob turns to the 30 owners who are probably (laughs) not happy right now, and he says, look, there's two options right now. They have the votes. So there's two options. We can either try our darndest to whittle away all of the support that we can and still probably not get it under 50% for the eventual vote. And in doing so, essentially force the Senate Judiciary Committee's hand to go all in on us. Or we can voluntarily voluntarily recognize right now. And when, when I have my Senate Judiciary Committee hearing in a couple months from now, I can say, here's what I did. I voluntarily recognized their union. Case closed. Every, everything's good now. 
and hope that the senators just get bored and, I don't know, decide to go after Amazon or something or decide to go after Howard Schultz for all of the union busting that they've been doing at Starbucks. I, I really don't know. That's because we were so steadfast. We were so certain that they would not voluntarily recognize this union. And so that's really one of the only explanations that I can think of is that the forces are aligning against them so much that they're afraid of a worse outcome than just having to bargain with the minor leaguers. The other point that's important here that you referenced earlier, but I think maybe kind of went slightly overlooked with the with the bigger news and and given that it's a little more inside baseball is the joining of the AFL-CIO, right? Uh, Major League Baseball's decision, or the Players Association's decision to join this this federation of of trade unions which which just creates more solidarity not only within the pa itself but when it comes to future labor actions either inside or or outside baseball yes. now they have this broader network of people who can stand behind them or who they will stand behind right i mean it's not a a union in and of itself but it is a collection of unions who can share resources, who can share strategies, who can band together and show public displays of support for each other. And and that's, I, th- I think, an underappreciated aspect of the way that the Players Association is building its worker power. Because yes. I know that there were, there were moments kind of over the last couple of years where, where things would happen in the broader labor landscape and it would be a question for us of like, are the players going to come out and address this? Are they going to throw their support behind this, you know, industry of workers? And this feels like a huge step in in that direction for building long-term worker solidarity. Yeah, I mean, so the AFL-CIO is not a union in and of itself in the sense that we talk about unions from a legal perspective, like from from the perspective of the National Labor Relations Board, they are not a union that can bargain against anybody specifically. But I think the AFL-CIO thinks of themselves as one union together. It's a collection of unions, and so that is just a stronger union based on the logic of what solidarity really means. And so when people say one union, like hashtag one you, when you see that at the end of people's tweets about solidarity, actions, about unions, and that sort of thing, that is what they're talking about. They're talking about this larger worker collective that is really all one union. So I, I actually do think it is an MLB, the MLBPA, in conjunction with what they're doing right now, which is trying to organize the most, most vulnerable workers in their industry, with the exception of, we should say, with the, the exception and the important caveat of the players who are in the Dominican Summer League camps who are not going to be part of this card check agreement that is that is tentatively been drawn up by both sides right now. It will not include the the Dominican facilities players. And now there's a lot of like legalese as to why they can or can't include those players in this minor league union. They technically are employed in a different country, even though they are employed by a company that is based in the United States, but they don't they don't work under United States workers laws. And so it's going to be up to the minor league union bargaining committee to try to do their best to get clauses in there that support those players without directly, without them being direct members. Right. But I think that joining the AFL CIO is to other people in labor circles, 
an indication that they want to work a little bit more collaborative, a little bit more collaboratively and a little bit more collectively. And that's a welcome message to me because, you know, we we had reservations about their solidarity across the rest of the organized labor world in the past. And, you know, I, I've given the caveat sometimes that 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 a union is only as radical as its current membership and its current executive leadership. And that leadership turns over a lot. So that that can sort of explain why maybe this iteration of the MLBPA wants to do a little bit more in the wider labor movement. But our friend Bradford William Davis, and that was the second time that I've referenced Bradford on this on this podcast, sent us a story or a story earlier this week and asked if we had seen it. And it was a story from Jason Wolf in the Arizona Republic who did an investigation into MLB and the MLBPA, who made that joint announcement during the lockout that they would each be providing $1 million in funds to ballpark workers who were going to be affected by the lockout to help get them through that period of time where they were not going to be getting a paycheck. And Jason discovered that MLB dispersed 160000 of that, and the Players Association has not given any of the money that they promised to give to those spring training workers seeking aid and that it hasn't ruled out that they'll give more in the future, but that they haven't given that money now. And that's the, that's the sort of thing that if you're going to join the AFL CIO, if you're going to organize the most vulnerable workers in your space, that it, that is unacceptable. And so I think that there is now more of a mechanism and an expectation on the MLBPA that they will disperse funds like that, that they will show more support and solidarity, that they won't cross a picket line to stay in a hotel in 2018 because it's convenient for the Red Sox. And honestly, I'm not trying to be snarky about it. I'm not, I'm not trying to make a snide comment about it. That's the type of thing that unions don't do. When, when Amazon is union busting the ALU, the Teamsters don't deliver for them. Like These are expectations of being part of the AFL-CIO. And I don't think that MLBPA takes that lightly by joining them because they don't they didn't have to join. They haven't been part of it. Sort of infamously, they're not part of it. When there are other players associations like the NFLPA, who is part of the AFL-CIO. So it also comes at an interesting time where there's a wider coalition of sports unions who are trying to improve working conditions for some of the leagues and situations that have been left behind, like the National Women's Soccer Team. And so hopefully they can be leaders on this front because obviously the MLBPA, as we've discussed many, many times, they've been, you know, at the vanguard of some of the most successful labor fights in American history. So I don't know. It, it's it's exciting to me. It definitely feels like a, kind of the next chapter in MLB's long storied labor history, right? Which went kind of dormant for a couple decades, right? Really, I mean, this is the, the biggest thing to happen on the labor landscape since the since the strike in the 90s. Mm-hmm. And in that interim period, I think they kind of lost a little bit of momentum. So this could definitely set uh, set them up well to really be leaders in the sports industry and you know as it relates to labor and in the broader labor community as you know as we've been saying given the the hopeful solidarity they'll show to other unions kind of coming down the road. I think we got a reply to our tweet when, when they announced that they were going to be joining the AFL-CIO. And I quote tweeted it. Someone replied and said, I'd love to hear you guys talk about like the basically the politics of 
federations of unions and like what it means to be in the AFL-CIO alongside other unions who sometimes don't have the best politics or don't have the wider worker movement in mind. I mean, I think it there's this reputation, right, that a coalition of unions that big can never act as radically as one union could act on their own. I think that is some received wisdom if you spend enough time in labor circles and you read enough labor theory because the AFL-CIO, you know, it's a place where like cop unions are part of the AL-CIO. And some of the more radical unions within the AFL-CIO would say, kick them out. They're not allowed to be part of this. And so by joining the AFL-CIO, you might say, oh, okay, well, MLBPA, how radical can they want to be when they're joining this place with with a bunch of police unions and and things like that? And I don't know. To that question, it's kind of a hard it's kind of hard question to answer because like unions within the AFL-CIO can act as radical as they want still. The AFL-CIO is never going to say don't go on strike. You know, like you unite here who when we when there was the strike authorization vote with the Dodgers, Unite here is one of the unions that represents a lot of hospitality workers and they're part of the AFL-CIO. And you have organi- we had organizers on the podcast and they said, we think of ourselves as a radical union. We go on strike at where we need to. And so I don't think that this, I don't think this is the MOBPA saying we're going to be more radical or we're going to be less radical. It's just them saying we are going to participate in more things in the wider labor movement. And so that's why I think this is good. That's why I think this is a win for the labor movement as opposed to them sort of just existing on their own and being incredibly beneficial in a success story, but only for a very, very small subsect of workers. It's going to be really unfortunate when Eric Adams burns the NYPD and they turn their back on him and MLB players do the same. <laughs> you think Adams is going to spurn the NYPD? <laughs> I kind of feel not. like that's the no, last thing that he would right. ever do. <laughs> they did this just to placate him. <laughs> It's going to be unfortunate when the Mets win the World Series and Eric Adams is pissed about it. And the Mets have to turn to Eric Adams and say, you're in our union, dude. (laughs) You're supposed to support us. (laughs) Mets win the World Series. Eric Adams says, solidarity. (laughs) Didn't we figure out out that he calls himself a Mets fan? Wait, did we figure that out? I mean, I don't know how true it was, but he like threw out a first pitch at the game. Oh, yeah. So then it's so and then was, and vice like, versa. So it's going to be unfortunate when the Yankees. When the Yan- when the, wow! Can't yeah, you can't, can't say no, that. Literally, no. felt my tongue cut being the recording. <laughs> um, okay. Anything else to say on the voluntary recognition aside from the fact that, like, holy shit, it happened? <laughs> no, I mean, like I said earlier, I think now comes the real fight. Right? This was like step zero. It's the most important step in this process for sure, but things are not going to be easy in the coming negotiations. It's the most important step, but it's not the hardest step. Right, exactly. It's a good way of thinking about it. Yes, exactly. Because they're really far apart. I mean, I don't even know what issues are being discussed, and I already know they're very far apart. That's for a future podcast. (laughs) Yeah, that's for a future podcast. I guess it's it's worthwhile to say actually what comes next, which is that there will be a voluntary card check agreement on Wednesday of this week. We're recording this on a Sunday. It'll come out on a Monday, so whenever you listen to it. Uh, on Wednesday, September 14th, I believe, is when the card check agreement 
is happening, according to Trevor later in this episode. And so after that, as long as everything goes smoothly and there's no legal contentions with that voluntary card check, what happens next is that the minor league unit will elect members to their bargaining committee, the same way that the MLBPA has individual team representatives as well as the executive subcommittee of players who make up their bargaining committee when there is a CBA negotiation. And so I don't know how many people will be in that bargaining committee, probably a lot. It's usually about like 10% of your unit. So that would be about like 50 people. All of them would probably not participate in bargaining because that would become very unwieldy very fast every single time. But they will elect those members as representative of the, the wider unit. And those members will confer back and forth with the rest of the, the unit to, to figure out what they want to fight hardest for. And they'll have a ton of stuff to bargain over. Because this will be their first time bargaining. They have nothing guaranteed. They have nothing written in stone about what they... Nothing written in stone that they can carry over from a previous CBA and say, we just want to keep everything the same. Every single thing that materially affects their working conditions will need to be bargained over down to the word, more or less. And it's going to be a big fight, like you said. it's, It's going to be a big fight. But in terms of next steps, it's electing a bargaining committee. And who knows? Maybe some maybe some friends of the show will be on that bargaining committee. Yeah, I got a couple recommendations I can put in. <laughs> uh, all right, you want to talk about rule changes? I guess. So, like, I think of rule changes as one of the things that we've honestly talked about the most throughout the history of this show. Unfortunately, but it's been such a front and center story. Yeah. For the Rob Manfred commissioner's office, you know, like he's made this. He said something about rule changes in his introductory press conference. And that's been a theme of his commissionership ever since then, that he wants to make rule changes for whatever reason to to make the game more appealing to a younger audience. So we got three new rules this past week. Kind of. We got like three new rules and some of them have like 12 different subsections on how they're applied. Right. And it, it, they came to us under the process that was outlined in this recent round of CBA negotiations. And that is that there is a competition committee made up of five representatives from teams, one umpire, and four representatives from the player's side. And so there is a majority, obviously, on the league side, so they can essentially, if they are all aligned amongst each other, outvote anything that the players want to do in terms of changing the rules. That's something that I think is important to start this conversation by saying because the players basically gave that up in bargaining. And so you can change the rules, I guess. And it's been that way for a while, so I, I imagine that they didn't think of it as them giving something up but knowing rob it's basically like giving him carte blanche now to to make all of his rule changes under the accepted collectively bargained agreement um those three rule changes are there will be a pitch clock the much discussed pitch clock there'll be 15 seconds when the bases are empty 20 seconds when there's runners on base a hitter can get one timeout per plate appearance and that comes along with a limit to pickoffs over to first base, or I guess over to any base, uh, because when you perform a pickoff move, the clock will reset, so they want to prevent people from just resetting the clock at their whim to, to avoid manipulation of this pitch clock. There will be bigger bases, first, second, and third. Instead of being a 15-inch square, they will be an 18-inch square. And the third one, perhaps the one that I dislike the most, <laughs> is that they're banning the shift. There will be shift restrictions 
there needs to be two infielders with two feet on the dirt on each side of second base to start every single pitch. Alex, your thoughts? I have like no thoughts about 67% of these rules changes. Which 67% of those? (laughs) What do you think? (laughs) Here's the thing. Pitch clock? Fine with it. Yeah. Seems like it works. That's what I've all the all the people smarter than I who've watched more of this in action than I have said it works and you get used to it pretty easily. So that's fine. I I know we poke fun at all the kind of hand wringing, the the moral panic over the l- pace of play and the length of baseball games. Right. But I also wouldn't mind them being shorter. Like that's that's cool with me. If it keeps more action in the game and keeps things moving along, great. That nothing wrong with that. I was on board with this until I saw someone share that Gary, Keith, and Ron had a conversation in yesterday's Mets game that was like, Well, with the pitch clock, we won't have enough time to really banter as much. <laughs> and I was like, fuck. You're right. <laughs> that's core to my fan experience, is their banter. <laughs> Well, that's not the case for all announcing booths, and it's not the case for every baseball game. So, right, actually, don't let my I, Mets fan. For the most part, it'll probably be beneficial get, in that yeah, regard. Exactly, exactly. It'll probably save a lot of announcers from losing themselves jobs. Yeah. <laughs> the only thing about the pitch clock is, again, it it gets into the weeds so much yep. with what counts as a timeout and what counts as the pitcher disengaging and. I love Max Scherzer just immediately was like, I'm going to find a way to manipulate this. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> so funny. honest, Max. Yeah. And who's going to stop him? Honestly. Is the well, going to come out there and be like, Max Scherzer? No. <laughs> I, but that, that's kind of my question, right? Is like, yeah. how, what is the enforcement of this sort of thing going to look like? Yeah, because famously, like 10 years ago or like in the mid 2000s or something like that, there was the rule about how you're not allowed to step out of the batter's box between pitches. And that rule is still in effect. Yeah. Uh, go watch a game. <laughs> go watch any baseball game. See if anyone is enforcing that rule. The The thing that stood out to me most about this specific rule change is that walk-up songs are limited to 10 seconds. It's horseshit. You've just limited the amount of songs that you can even select from because some songs you need more than 10 seconds to really hit home. Yeah. You know, that hook, you might need 12 seconds. Mm-hmm. It's anti-American. <laughs> Yeah, this the TikTokification of Major League exactly. Baseball. I was told that patience is a virtue. You know, like what what was my childhood for? Yeah, there's no payoff anymore, dude. Does Edwin Diaz have to run in to the pitcher's mound in a 10 second period of time? No way, dude. That's so short. I know, <laughs> like Usain bolting it the, from the bullpen from carts. The bullpen. Bring them back. <laughs> bullpen carts going like 25 miles an hour. <laughs> it leaves skid skid marks in the outfield. Um. I think it's fine. I think the pitch clock is fine. I think it's good. I agree with the MLBPA's stance. They released a statement from the competition committee members afterwards as to why they voted unanimously against the pitch clock and this and unanimously against the pitch clock and the shift restrictions was because it's basically going from no rules about this to pretty strict rules really fast and there hasn't been you know, I don't think that there's been that big of a sample size of a study that proves to me that people won't get hurt from this. And I think the reason I'm fine with this is because ultimately, if you can't gather and throw a pitch within 15 or 20 seconds, 
you're probably throwing harder than you should be throwing for your UCL anyway. <laughs> so I, I think it's okay to ask players to adjust for the sake of the game, <laughs> for the sake of having fans of the game. Um, because I think it's not just about limiting game length. I think it's what you're talking about. It's about it's about game flow. And those are two slightly different things. Maybe that seems a little bit pedantic, but I think that having less time between pitches is probably in the aggregate a good thing. Um, bigger bases, fine, great. Haven't seen anybody be like, no, the bases should be actually smaller. <laughs> but that would be a good zag for someone yeah. out there listening. <laughs> be like, get on Twitter, be like, thread, one of 37, why the bases should be smaller. <laughs> <laughs> Let's talk about the shift, man. Because uh, we, th- we've talked about this rule a lot. Yeah. Are, do you agree with me that it's insane that they're doing this? Yes, it's ridiculous. Okay. Can you say why? Because I'm not sure if we have the exact same opinion, like word for word, or if I'm just a crank. I mean, instituting this sort of restriction on where players can play as a reaction to how the game has developed is antithetical to the notion of any sense of progress within the game. Teams are getting smarter. They're finding different ways to gain an edge. They are playing the game different. The game just looks different now than it did 150 years ago. And so the idea that we need to keep it in this antiquated form just as a way to placate the old heads who you know can't wrap their heads around four players on one side of the base or or to to supposedly you know bring offense back into the game or whatever which it's not going to do like the things they want it to do it's not going to do yeah but Rob like, Manfred has never read a Russell Carlton no absolutely not but like so <laughs> i really i really don't get i don't get why they're doing it i just don't I, not enough people are actually that mad about this, that it's really something that needed to be addressed right now. I mean, I, I agree with you. I think it's fascinating that this is the thing that they landed on, that this is one of the things that they think will bring offense back into the game for a couple of reasons. Because, so, you know, technocrat Rob, we've discussed how Rob has this technocratic approach to trying to fix the game. He thinks that he can lawyer his way out of any problem. He thinks that he can rule book his way out of any problem. When you look at the shift you say okay who does this help this helps power this helps lefties who hit for power they're going to get a few more singles to the right side is that the largest subsection of players these days is the strikeout problem only confined to left-handed players who get shifted against you know and of course there is more there's more and more shifts as we go. So they're starting to shift righties more often. They're starting to shift in more creative ways. They shift up the middle a little bit more versus they shade all the way to the right. They put the whole infield on the right side. They shift the outfield a different way than they shift the infield. I just don't know that that's the problem. Honestly, you know, if you are an effectively wild listener, you probably heard multiple times throughout the the history of that podcast that you've heard them make the argument that this might increase strikeout rate because pitchers might just say, okay, well, now I don't have the shift anymore, so there's even less of a reason for me to try to induce ground balls. Let me just go all in on trying to strike out as many guys as possible because this will make it harder for my defense to make outs if the ball gets put in play. I think that's pretty reasonable, honestly. I think that that sort of logic is the same type of logic that teams have employed that got us to this point of shifting and three true outcomes. 
Um, I agree with everything you said. I agree that this is a this is basically telling teams that they shouldn't try to progress their strategies in baseball and that they should just conform to what some people think is aesthetically pleasing version of the game. It's curious that you think that. Just just curious for a reason that I won't name because it's banned from talking about it on the podcast. Teams making a, making a decision about what they think is better for them. <laughs> like, I don't know. Like a certain position not being able to hit, but focusing mostly on developing their I I love defense. that you can't let this go. I love <laughs> that you can't let it go. It's so it's so reactionary that they're banning this shift. I can't believe they gave in to people who were like, whose best argument was when a ground ball goes up the middle, I expect it to be a hit. Yeah. <laughs> it's fucking I insane. Know. I mean, I just the 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 one difference that I see with your unnamed case is that this is penalizing the game for cha- for changing for this the is r- r- right or just changing at all whether or not the shift is good or not doesn't even matter but like it's litigating this idea of baseball that says there is a purest form of it right mm-hmm. and that is with two players on each side of the base and and yes. batters should learn to do it. and it's just like that doesn't even track with all of the other rule changes that no. have been made, you know, like the baseball is not in its quote unquote, like purest form anymore. The game has changed. And right. Are you going to, are you going to institute a minimum that pitchers starting pitchers are allowed to throw now? Right. Just because you thought it was more fun when pitchers went deep Ex- in the game. Yes, exactly. It's insane. It's insane. <laughs> and also the thing that's most frustrating about it to me is that it's just anti-intellectual. Yeah. It's like teams spent years developing strategies for how to defensively align and that's good it made bad defenders passable and it made good defenders great and you looked at that and you said we should not allow that Mm -hmm. it's just it's silly it's it's penalizing the smartest teams for being smart i don't get that yeah we do a lot of penalizing uh good teams for doing good (laughs) things as of late (laughs) It's sort of like the uh, the luxury tax of rule changes. <laughs> <laughs> All that being said, another effectively wild shout out. I was listening to their most recent episode with uh, they they do a segment called Past Blast, where they share stories and facts from baseball's history, well back in the rear view of baseball his baseball's history. And uh, the guy who assisted with them in that research up until 1900. Uh, it's a guy named Richard Hirschberger, and he was on the pod this past week talking about the rule changes because there were obviously so many rule changes early on in baseball's history that got it to this sort of purest form that we know it as now. And he made a pretty compelling case to me that in the in the long, long view of hit baseball's history, the shift chain, the the banning the shift rule change is like one of the the less radical ones, honestly, and how it's gonna actually change the game like it's much less radical than like moving the mound back or lowering the mound in terms of how much it's actually going to change what we watch next year and we'll probably adjust to it quickly so for all this fervor that we have right now i think in like 18 months we're just not going to talk about this like i'm not going to see a single up the middle and be like that should have been fielded but that also doesn't make it any less stupid like it's, it's also so it's also not going to change things for the better i don't think and it'll probably change the game in ways that we aren't really aware of yeah right like now, it's going to make right? kyle tucker the mvp <laughs> actually as he should be because he's so fucking frankly good. love yeah, that guy most underrated good. player in baseball but like if you're making a rule change that 
functionally, the the fans don't really notice, but it also doesn't really change the pace or tenor of the game. Like, what was the what was the point of the rule, rule change? I don't know, dude. Um, la- my final thought on this is that everybody gets a trophy. Culture strikes again. Yeah. Oh, you can't hit the other way. I guess we're just changing the rules for you then. <laughs> the wussification of the American baseball player. Oh, can't learn to hit the other way. I guess here comes Rob Manfred to save you. <laughs> All right, let's take a quick break. And then when we come back, we're going to talk to Trevor Hildenberger about unionizing the minor leagues. All right, we are now joined by Trevor Hildenberger, friend of the pod, Trevor Hildenberger. What's up, man? <laughs> What's up? I'm a huge fan. Uh, you guys have no idea how genuine it is when I say it is an honor to be here. Wow. You flatter us, sir. You flatter us, sir. Trevor, you are with the San Jose Giants. You, of course, started with the Twins organization. You're with the Mets for a bit, moving all around, recovering from flexor surgery right now. But uh, we're not here to talk about flexor surgery. We're here to talk about the minor league union. So yeah, just to start go. all of this, to start all of this, uh, like how, how shocked were you? Take us through when all of this unfolded. It's all happened so damn fast. So what, what does this whole process look like from a real baseball player side? We obviously know how it unfolded on the Tipping Pitches podcast where we just got in front of a <laughs> microphone and, and, and yelled shit that we probably don't even remember at this point. But take us through what it was like for you, man. Um, yeah, I mean, I think the last few weeks have seemed fast. I think this is a, a long time in the making, obviously, um, decades in the making. I think people have known about the, uh, the poor working conditions of minor leagues for a long time, but yeah, in terms of how stunning it is between August 1st and now, um, (laughs) yeah, frankly, I'm shocked. (laughs) (laughs) I, know, I wish our listeners ecstatic. could see the like giddy look on your face right now. Like, I love it. <laughs> can't stop smiling. Uh, it's so cool, man. And it's, and it's going to help so many thousands of people and their families uh, for hopefully decades to come. So um, it's definitely the coolest thing that I've been a part of in my career. I think it's cooler than pitching the big leagues. I think it's cooler than graduating college. I think it's cooler than uh, just about almost everything to, to be a part of this, you know, with a group of guys that I think it was the right people at the right time. Um, and the, the events over the last three or four years, um, maybe even five years, uh, you know, really came to a head and we made a push, made it happen. And here we are recognized union card verification by a third party on Wednesday. Hell yeah. God, Let's can't, go. That's can't crazy. believe we're having this conversation. Let's fucking go. <laughs> I can't believe we're having this conversation like real life in the flesh on, on a podcast. Yeah. Truly. I know. How many times have you guys speculated on the pod? Like, when do you think it'll happen? Well, and, I, I joked with Alex that we did our like predictions for the next five years for our five year anniversary. And one of them yeah. that I made was that my, the minor leagues will be unionized. But I certainly didn't think that that would happen within like five months from when we did that, not five years. Yeah. 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 Can you can you take us through a little bit of the timeline for this effort? I mean, to the extent that you're you're able to and you're able to speak kind of from your own sure. um, 
experience. But I think, you know, obviously, again, it happened so fast on the outside for all of us, but obviously for months and maybe years, there was, you know, work going on behind closed doors, either in the Players Association with advocates for minor leaguers, et cetera. So can you kind of zoom out for us a little bit and talk about kind of sure. what, what that effort has been like? I think over the past few seasons, few years, Advocates for Minor Leaguers has been um, relatively prominent in terms of highlighting some of the the poor working conditions that minor leaguers uh, endure in terms of like, and I think that social media has given this era of players the tool to, to share their conditions um, directly to thousands of people. And and advocates has done a good job of compiling some of these stories and these um, these images of of poor working conditions. So yeah, a couple of years. I think that I got involved very. I mean, I've always had my kind of ear to the ground, I say, finger on the pulse of what's going on. Mm-hmm. Um, since I started playing, and my eyes were open because I was a fifth year senior when I signed. I got a signing bonus. My round doesn't even exist anymore. Uh, I got a. <laughs> A signing bonus. RIP to the late yeah. rounds, man. We really missed those. It just barely. I was a 22nd. But yeah. Um I got a thousand dollar signing bonus. Um it ended up being like 571 bucks after um taxes. And I broke my phone like my first week in Florida. So there goes the signing bonus gone. Oh, oh no. I I was 23. I got put in the um the GCO, which is the lowest level of professional um uh, of the domestic reserve list professional baseball. And so I was a lot older than a lot of these guys and I had lived on my own for five years and going to college and stuff. And, um, the twins had just built this brand new facility down in Fort Myers, um, with dorms attached to like the cafeteria and obviously the fields and stuff. So they required all the guys in the GCL to live there. Um, no matter how old you were, no matter if you were married or not, um, unless you owned property in Florida, which of course I have enough money to buy property in Florida and it costs $17 a day. I was making eleven hundred a month, so at the time my paychecks were one hundred and eighty-five dollars every two weeks. So it was like it worked out. We did the math one day; it worked out to a little over two bucks an hour. Um, so at, at that point, I was just like, "Okay, this is how it is. <laughs> oh, something's right. going to have to change here eventually." <laughs> this is this is fun. Um, yeah. So over the course of my career, and seeing guys who I thought had the talent and the um, the ability to pitch or play in the big leagues and bail on minor league baseball because it's untenable. Yeah. They had had a kid and couldn't support themselves or their families and quit with like a sub two. And they'd just be like, nah, I can't do it anymore. Um, or they wanted to do something else in terms of travel and oh, time away from their family, which is part of the game, but it definitely, you know, salary and, and your experience in the minor leagues affects that. So to watch us lose talent like that in the game and um that's always kind of affected me and then mm. i would say over the past what is it september now yep 7 months i got relatively more involved in seven, with the last 7 months in february i had conversations with harry marino which you guys know is the executive director of advocates now works for the mlbpa mm-hmm. um and andrew trip of advocates who had um, been a part of several organizing efforts um and including like nurses and doctors in hospitals that he we talked about you know how it would look 
um, to have two different unions under the same umbrella, guys going back and forth and stuff like that. And really eye-opening and enlightened conversations about details about that stuff that I hadn't had before. Yeah. So it was nice to have, get that, get some of my answers or some of my questions answered. And, um, moving forward, I was a, a point of contact. I tried to have conversations in the clubhouse and open guys up to, you know, it doesn't have to be this way forever. And, you know, we really do have power in our solidarity and our labor and we create a lot of value for these teams. And like, there are things we can improve guys. These conversations happened over the past six months and, and then the lawsuit, you know, the settlement happened, yeah. which guys who don't pay attention or care about um, unionization or the labor movement at large were kind of like, yo, do I get a cut of that? It's like, <laughs> yeah, every minor leaguer is going to get a piece of that. So that was an easy, an easy inroad to kind of explain to them. If you want some more, then, you know, there's things we can do. So it's been fun to kind of be, and especially at this point in my career, I'm a bit older and I was in rehab and I was the oldest guy there mm-hmm. um, with a little bit experience in the big leagues. Um, my, my influence and I wasn't scared to get released or anything like that. So it was easy to have these conversations and um, my influence, I think hopefully had a positive impact. I want to ask you about how much has changed in your time in the minors in terms of being able to have those conversations. So you're drafted in 2014. Obviously this is pre advocates for minor leaguers. This is pre sort of like the wider media world, really focusing in on some of these things about how little minor leagues are making, how poor the conditions are. These things have really accelerated in terms of how much has changed in the last couple of years. But when you started out and you started to realize it was two bucks an hour, you started to realize your signing bonus was gone within two weeks because you dropped your phone. Like things like that. When you talk to other minor leaguers, of course, guys know this stuff. They know that it's not their actual value. They know that they're having to struggle through all of this bullshit so that they can hopefully cash in at the bigs one day. But just how much did that change in the last couple of years? And I guess what what would you credit as the driving force behind why it was easier to have these conversations now? And why this is the right group of players at the right time. Yeah, I think when I was first drafted in my first few years in the minor leagues, it was just an accepted part of it. It was part of the culture. It was part of, you know, test your metal. How much could you withstand and still perform well? And when you made it through the grind and you got to the big leagues, you had somehow earned it even more than if you, you know, made 20,000 a year instead of 10,000 a year. Somehow it was about, um, enduring these hardships, which everybody knew and acknowledged. And it's just like, this is part of the game. It's what you got to do. Mm-hmm. You want to play in the big leagues. This is it. You got to take this path. So I think over when the save America's pastime act passed and the language came out and that said that minor leaguers were seasonal apprentices and weren't even employees. I think that that I remember being on a, on a bus and I think we were in Pensacola, Florida and reading that quote and being, and talking to guys, a guy named Todd Van Steensel was just laughing, like laughing. This is what they think of us. They do not care. They do not care. And, and that for lack of a better term, radicalized some guys. And, and then the canceled season in which minor leaguers, you know, initially weren't even going to get paid at all until there was backlash about that. And then, you know, a lot of owners ended up paying guys. So 
I think a mix of those two things um, really allowed people to just speak their minds a little bit more freely. Yeah. And the fear of retaliation for whatever reason between 2014 and 2021 has, has dissipated a lot and which is great. Uh, and then, yeah, in terms of the timeline coordination, getting contact info for a lot of guys over the past six months, we're having zoom calls probably weekly over the past three months. And then things, uh, really ramped up this year, especially since the summer, uh, MLB, PA said that they were willing to invite us in. Perfect, ideal, great situation. Um, you know, we have their their resources in terms of their labor lawyers and their comms and their PR and um, their experience um, negotiating with MLB. And Tony Clark is a lot of credit to him about uh, getting the executive committee together for them and unanimous support from MLB players. And we sent the union cards out and then it was like, did you get this? Did you get this? Did you get this? Did you get this? And all those conversations following up with people trying to get cards signed um, as soon as possible. You know, we really wanted um, a majority of guys to sign. And obviously it's a union for all and we want every single minor leaguer to sign the card. So if you're a minor leaguer listening to this podcast and you haven't signed it, find me on Twitter. I will DM you the link, but I doubt that if there's someone listening to this podcast, they probably have that. <laughs> <laughs> Um, and then, yeah, we passed 50% asked for recognition. I think that MLB did the right thing in acknowledging us and is bargaining going to be difficult. Yeah, of course it always is, but the faster that we can get to the bargaining table, the faster that we can fight for a, a failed, de- a fair deal, for all minor leaguers and improve, um, a lot of conditions. So you mentioned Manfred, uh, announcing that they were going to voluntarily recognize the union did that come as a surprise to you because i know here on tipping pitches <laughs> we really we, we got got it bro you can just say it we, we got got yeah, we did we, we, we said that that would never happen <laughs> <laughs> yeah so I like was... what was your kind of response to when you when you heard that i think i tweeted it i said uh holy fucking shit <laughs> <laughs> Oh, we did it. Like <laughs> they said, yes, that's dope. Like I said, I was at my parents' house and I was talking to them before I headed to, to the San Jose Giants game to the field. And I flipped over my phone and, you know, we have a, a group chat going and I had like 20 notifications and I thought, oh, we got a response, you know, cause we had asked for, um, voluntary recognition on Thursday mm-hmm. and this was Saturday. No, Friday. Friday. Yeah. I don't know. Yeah. Friday. Maybe we asked Wednesday. It had been a couple of days, Tuesday. Anyways. So I flipped the phone over and I was like, Oh, we got a response. <laughs> it was not the response <laughs> I expected. Um, but elated. Like I said, I was pretty over overjoyed and overwhelmed. Um, cause I just know how many people and families this will help people that had trouble paying for diapers who memorized the Walmart, return policy in terms of air mattresses, bikes to get around town, TVs, because every 90 days they had to go back and get their money back so they could save money. Um, housing has got a lot better because of the house, new housing policy, um, but there are still conditions to be improved there. And 
and I just know that that this is the first step in a, a long road, but it was the biggest step that needed to be made. And so, so proud to be part of this group of guys who stood up, used their voice, and now we have a seat at the table. Trevor, I wanted to ask you about um, just kind of like what your what your like knowledge and stance of labor history and unions was before coming into this process. Like, did you did you think about these things actively before you were kind of thrust into these situations? Or was this something where like you got to the miners, you realized this is going to have to change. And then the logical next step is the only way that we can really truly change this is to band together and form a union, show solidarity, improve our own working conditions on our own terms by getting a seat at the table. Or did, did you kind of have these designs around unions before this process? You know, I didn't. Um, I went to college and I hadn't, I don't know how soon I would have had these feelings in any labor force, but I really mm-hmm. hadn't had a job. Um, you know, I went to high school and then to Cal and I was playing baseball. And then during the summers, I was either playing baseball or in summer school. And I hadn't, I hadn't had a job until I played in the minor leagues. Well, yeah, that's true. Minor leagues was my first job. Uh, and then in the off season, I worked other jobs, but I think I didn't have these, these ideas or these understandings of what the value of labor was and the value of solidarity and, and collective action was. Um, and I'm embarrassed to say how long it took me to like, to, to get to this realization that, you know, we need to do this together and these shared experiences throughout the minor leagues um, and these shared traumas are really powerful. If we can put them into uh, to action. But yeah, I think, I think tipping pitches played a role in that <laughs> in terms of learning labor history and understanding where we are in the labor landscape and the, the labor movement. And yeah, tip of the hat to you guys for sure. I think um, it was important in my enlightenment. That's very kind. The, the reason I ask is because, you know, for most people, like where, wherever you're from, right? Like you're from California, but where, wherever you're from, yeah. wherever you're from, if you played baseball your whole life, you probably never had to think much about like the economics of it until you experienced that for the first time. So we talk a lot about how, you know, the conversation in minor league baseball has always been, it's going to be such a difficult thing to organize because there are people from such disparate places playing for different teams at different levels and they all have different life experiences. So, you know, I was just curious because I imagine most minor league baseball players had the exact same experience as you. Like they never thought about what the working conditions were going to be like. They maybe had heard stories about it, but you know, like, I think that's exactly true for for the vast, mass, vast, vast majority of players, but also of just people in the workforce in general. Like, I never thought much about unions specifically. Like, I had certain politics by the time I got into the workforce, but never thought necessarily about how those unions would line up with those politics. So I was just curious about that. Yeah, no, I think you're exactly right. I think as a 16-year-old cisgender white guy from the suburbs, I didn't, I wasn't forced to think about, you know, uh, unions and the labor movement and what how people are exploited and I'm glad that I came to these realizations and and we've kind of you know made a step towards progress but but for sure yeah I think um, not until I was in the minor leagues that I, I had that it's it's really interesting because you know I think we we talk a lot about kind of the culture around baseball and how for for decades it's been largely more conservative than maybe other sports right it's it's certainly i think the one that um has the most kind of uh 
closed doors discussion, the kind of the kind of thing that maybe doesn't bleed out onto the field, right? And and this feels like an interesting kind of corollary to that where the the experience of the minor leagues and seeing these conditions kind of up front can also be a really radicalizing moment and and introduction to sort of progressive politics almost. Mm-hmm. I mean, do do you think that teammates of yours were kind of going through the same um journey that you were on or or was it more most guys are just kind of heads down i'm gonna play yes i'm aware of the conditions but it's not worth you know kicking up dirt over i don't know i think that probably some guys are having the same journey that i had um and probably some of the latter where people are just focused on on taking care of their families and and yeah they know that the conditions are bad but they really don't want to um rock the boat and they don't have the time or energy to focus on that. And they're kind of just, you know, it's so much stress and pressure and um, in terms of being a professional athlete, people maybe don't have the capacity to focus on all these things and just, just want to take care, take care of their business. And I understand that. So when I was having these conversations, I didn't try to make it a big political stance, right? right? I just wanted to, to communicate that we had some shared experiences and that, um, thousands and thousands and thousands of minor leaguers before us had the same experiences. And I really hope that thousands and thousands don't have to later on Yeah, and that we can make it better. Was, did you, did you get good reception when you were having those conversations? Oh, like were were most absolutely. guys like, like, yes, absolutely. You know, like I'm not going to stand up on my own necessarily, but if we're doing a, a concerted organized effort, like it makes it a lot absolutely. easier. Absolutely. And I think that, I had to to have these conversations loud enough so that it wasn't like a one-on-one secret bathroom yeah. conversation. Mm-hmm. Um, you know, other people could hear I'd have it over a meal or on the bus or whatever. And people could listen, even if I wasn't talking to them directly, I kind of said it loud enough so that, um, so people didn't feel like, am I the only one, you know, and people mm-hmm. felt like it was a collective action. We were doing it all together. That was really important. That's so fascinating to me. And I have to just commend you for being one of the people to have those conversations because it's terrifying. Like I had those conversations when we were forming my union and I, it, it's the exact same thing. It's like at the ringer, it's like, it's the exact same thing where you're just trying to keep it macro. Like you're just trying to say, Hey, you know, maybe you and I, the person that I'm having this conversation with, we were able to tough it out because, you know, I had support from my parents or I was living with family and I didn't have to pay rent at this time. But the next person that comes along, like, like you're saying, Trevor, like guys have sub twos and they're dropping out of baseball. Like that's just ridiculous. This is not, this is not giving us the best product for anyone. The guys who are trying to make it, the fans, the teams, this is not the best process for anyone. And so, you know, I have to, we, we got to tip our caps to you for having those conversations because it's, it takes a lot of, it takes a lot of courage to have them in a setting like that where you don't know how it's going to be received by guys. I was one of many. There were tons of guys across a lot of levels, across a lot of organizations. Um, that were involved with advocates who have done the same conversations I have, maybe more, probably more. Um, there are a lot of guys who've done a lot of work and um, I'm just really happy and proud to be a part of the group. Um, I hope that I had a positive, inf- positive impact. I, I try my best, but yeah, it was a group effort. Noted uh, early adopter of the, 
uh, unionize the miners shirts right here. I remember you, you slid <laughs> yeah. into our DMs and said, yo, can I, can I cop one? And we were like, yes, please. Send the link. Yeah. <laughs> and I, and I wore it to the field a lot and nobody said anything. Nobody looked at me weird. Mm-hmm. Um, and I wore it. Yeah. I think that <laughs> people, I mean, players commented on it for sure. Players noticed it, but there was never any like pushback from any team official or anything like that. So, um, thank you guys for the merch. I <laughs> am hoping, is there a Giants one? Wow. The first live request on the pod for a new shirt. <laughs> yeah, we always get, we always get like, when are you going to make a Yankees one? When are you going to make a Rays one? Who would look so good in Royals? Is there a Giants yeah. one? Great question. Uh, there's not, but certainly we're open to creating one. I mean, the I mean, we're, one is dope. The Diamondbacks yeah. one is really dope. That one was that one was fun to make. I mean, we're at this crossroads now where people are asking for other teams. Right. And we're like, all right, but they but they did they did the thing on the shirt, right? Like they, it's that was you don't have to make it anymore. You can just say <laughs> Well, what's did. your sta- what's Job your stance done. on that, Trevor? What do you think we should do? Should we change it to like unionized past tense? Should we change it to like thank fucking God oh, we unionized oh. the miners or something like that? Like what should it say now? Like unionized to the miners. Yeah. Mm. Period. Okay. Okay. I like it. I think people um, would rock it. That's so yeah, that's perfect. What's next for you, man? What what uh what's the plan in terms of like your rehab coming back? How are how are things? Yeah, baseball. Play baseball <laughs> again. I think I'm really excited to pitch. Um I actually throw tonight in the San Jose Giants game. Um, which is like I said, a nice full circle moment for me. My my family will be there. Uh, my parents get to see me. Um, so my old high school pitching coach, some friends I played little league with. That'll be cool. Um, and then, yeah, going to the offseason healthy, try to get even better, even stronger, and come back at age 32 and try to contribute in the best way I can. Man, 32 is like the new 28. You know, come on. You're good. Oh, yeah. You're I'm going right the I'm in my prime. Yeah, exactly. I am in my prime. <laughs> Uh, Trevor Hildenberger thank you so much thanks for joining the show thanks for sharing your experience thanks for helping to unionize the damn minor leagues this is awesome man we really appreciate it yeah yeah let's go I wish uh, I don't have a bottle to pop I know we said we were going to pop bottles <laughs> should have made it should have made a trip to the store for some mimosas but thanks for having me on uh, like I said it was an honor pleasure I appreciate all you guys do Alex, breaking news on the podcast. That's right. That's breaking right. news on the podcast. Thank you to Trevor Hildenberger. Thank you for all of those kind words. It's honestly impossible for me to process the potential that we had any kind of positive effect on the literal unionization of the minor leagues. That's insane to me. Uh, Trevor's the best. Yeah. Give him a foot. We didn't shout out his Twitter handle, but T underscore Hildy with a Y. On Twitter. It's one of the better Twitter handles. It is one of the, yes, it is. It's yeah. definitely one of those Twitter handles where you know he's just been called that since he was six. Yeah, T. Hildy. <laughs> Thanks to Trevor. Uh, the breaking news on the podcast is that Albert Pujols has hit number 697. He has passed none other than the biggest, most famous, most beloved listener of this podcast, Alex Rodriguez. And so, you know what we're going to do right now? We're going to take our hats off. <laughs> And we're going to stand and we're going to have a moment of silence for Alex Rodriguez. <laughs> Yankees fans would do it. I'm saluting right now as I speak. I know. The I listeners s- can't I see, see you it. Doing I'm saluting. It. Yeah. A hard salute. <laughs> Military style. Yeah. 
Marine style. That's that Joe Biden rest stop salute right there. <laughs> Shout out Joe, bro. Shout out Joe. Tweeting out support of the minor leaguers. That's right. Making it not cool to support the minor league union anymore. Thanks, Joe. Yeah. Shout out Senator Bernie Sanders. Mm-hmm. Who we inched a couple steps closer to having him on the podcast this past weekend. It's true. Thank you to all of the people tagging us in his replies, saying that he should come on our podcast. To all of those people, you are the foot soldiers of the revolution. <laughs> you want to do a couple of listener questions and then we'll get out of here? Yeah, let's do. Hi, Bobby. Hi, Alex. Uh, my name is Erica. First time, long time. Okay, so I live in Sacramento. I have been in Sacramento or near Sacramento, um, California, for most of my life. And I used to work for the Sacramento Rivercats, the AAA affiliate of the San Francisco Giants. And they were recently purchased, or their majority stake was purchased, by the Sacramento Kings ownership group, I believe. I want to know your guys' thoughts on this. How do we feel about the NBA now having a claim in the minor leagues? Will this help? Will this hurt? Um, just want to get your guys' thoughts. Thanks. Uh, Erica, thank you for the call. Really interesting question. Something I haven't thought all that deeply about before, but is is a is a definite trend in sports ownership, which is diverse the diversification of owning minor or major league teams in different sports. This is obviously something that's relevant as Fenway Sports Group tries to get into owning an NBA expansion team. Those are the rumors out there in the world these days. Um, Fenway Sports Group famously owns Liverpool as well, so it's international. I think that it's probably bad. It's probably bad for society, for single ownership groups to have the benefits of being bought into several leagues at once. It's monopolization of sports, which I think are, as if you're a listener of this podcast, you know, which I think should be a public good. And I think for single ownership groups, especially the the King's ownership group, which is not, not very good, hasn't had a track record of success. Um, But that doesn't really matter how successful you are. I think it's bad either way. I think owning teams in multiple sports just makes you like a, a a robber baron, for lack of a better phrase. I mean, how can you be committed to the betterment of one sport? Or how can you be committed to putting the best product on the field and focusing on what it takes and how how hard it is? People are complaining how hard it is to own these teams all the time. How can you be committed to that process if you also just have your money pulled around in five other sports at once. It just makes it seem like it's like they're stocks and they shouldn't be stocks. They're not stocks. They are public goods that a lot of people have interest in. Yeah. They're treated like assets that appreciate and depreciate in value. And so as a result, the people who own them, the people whose money it is care about them to the extent that they keep making them money, which obviously skews the way in which you run your business. And it's worth pointing out that the the investment company that purchased the minority stake in the Kings and now the majority stake in the uh, Rivercats also has uh, investments in like the Golden State Warriors, the 
uh, in Fenway Sports Group, they are invested in European soccer, which is just, I mean, that's get it on the ground floor shit right there. If you're if you're a sports cow. investment company and you're not in there, like <laughs> but you're right that like if if we're interested in a future where sports teams and sports leagues actually have meaningful connections to the cities that they are based in and to the communities that rally around them, this is not the way to go about it. Nope. Have, having the control person re- removed like 12 steps from the team itself is just not going to be good for actual meaningful investment in the community and the overall well-being of the club itself. Yeah, it's the Silicon Valleyification of sports teams. Yeah. Where you have just because someone has money and they invest in a startup or they give some of that money to get a stake of a company, they just sit on that board. And that gives you a tremendous amount of power. If you sit on all these boards at the same time, you can line up all of these founders, you can line up all of these sports teams and you can put them you can direct them in the interest that you see fit and often that interest is not widely shared by the public often that interest is your bank account and your friends at your country club's bank account and i think that that's pretty shitty honestly i think it's i think it's bad uh if there's any kind of silver lining like i don't think this is going to ruin this minor league baseball team i don't like i don't think the experience of you going to the river cat schemes is going to be be all that adversely affected but on a macro scale i think it's bad on a micro scale i mean there are things that I think could be beneficial about being bought into multiple sports at once in terms of like, I think the NBA is probably at the cutting edge of certain strategies in terms of marketing and PR and making your league more attractive to younger people. And even things like recovery and sports science, I think that it's useful to it, it would be useful for a sports team to share those strategies across across different leagues and different sports and different countries and that sort of thing. But I don't think you need to own multiple teams in order to be able to conduct that research and share that research. I think you could, probably could do that on your own uh, if you wanted to. Yeah, and I think there's probably, in a perfect world, having m- multiple sports teams in the same city have connections to each other is probably not a bad thing long term if you're interested in continuing to build community if you can create some sort of continuity around like sports in Sacramento or whatever but my guess is not that all of a sudden they're <laughs> going to be like cross promoting each other retweeting each other's tweets and shit <laughs> um is that your way of saying that your friend John Fisher is is, is definitely interested in selling the A's to Joe Lake Joe Lake yeah well, it's why I want the You're LA, trying to pump up the price. <laughs> it's why I want the LA Times owner to buy the Angels also. Because I think that sort of cross industry right. monopolization it's, is it's really good. it's good for brand identity. I think that's what Teddy Roosevelt was trying to say. Yes. He was trying to so like monopoly's bad, but monopolies in sports are okay. Right. Like right. as long as you have like a common like through line right. to everything. That sounds that sounds right. Okay. All right, next question. This next question comes from the Slack, it comes from Lizzie. Alex, this was a big story on social media last week where a Tampa Bay Rays fan caught Tristan Cassis's first home run ball. And uh, he held on tight. <laughs> so Lizzie asks, there's a Rays fan right now that's holding on to Tristan Cassis's first home run ball. 
Do you think it's at the fan's discretion or should all first home run balls be returned to the hitter? Famously, this man was kind of a dick about it. He uh, did not want to give the ball back even when employees came over and tried to negotiate with that fan over what he might want in exchange for this this home run ball. So what are your thoughts? What's the proper etiquette for how to handle catching someone's first home run ball or any milestone home run or hit baseball? I mean, I think etiquette and protocol are two different things right baseball has baseball here we go (laughs) baseball has set it up technocrat alex is logged on well i'm just saying baseball is the way they've set it up is the ball that goes into the stands is finders keepers right that's kind of wow the zach hample apologia is jumping out i know right (laughs) but also is is that a is that a good thing do you know the amount of baseballs we fucking go through every year so many baseballs. So, so you think we should baseballs. toss them back like little league? I think we, like when you get the ball back and you exactly. throw it over the fence yeah, exactly. to the umpire. <laughs> I mean, I think you don't have to be a dick about it. Like that's I, a good rule. Just don't be. Just don't be a just dick. Don't be a dick. Yeah, exactly. It's yeah. call DBA, it call it the Zach Campbell rule. <laughs> like, wait, okay, wait, wait. That's two Zach Campbell rule references. Yeah, right. Means that I need to go on this tangent. Just, just briefly, please entertain okay. this me. So Steve Gelbs, huh? Uh-huh. Just ethered, Zach ethered Hample. the man. Just fucking ethered him. Yeah, yeah. Where Hample set himself up for it by tweeting, "Hey, Steve, you need help? Uh, tips on how to catch a baseball that's hit towards you?" Because during an SNY broadcast, I think Steve Gelbs was wearing a glove and a ball was hit in his direction. And then, and then, uh, go check it out for yourself. We'll link you the description. Gelbs did it amazingly. He ethered Zach Campbell. But you were saying, don't be an asshole. Don't be a dick about it. Right. I mean, or and slide into Zach Campbell's mentions, and that's part of that praxis. Okay. Right. It's preventing others from being assholes. But point being, like, you don't need the baseball. Well, what if he was going to a game after this? <laughs> the Sandlot. It's like, rule. guys, no need to stop at the sporting goods store anymore. <laughs> it was signed by baby Ruthie. <laughs> <laughs> Good. Sick reference. Sick nice. reference. Yeah, thanks. I don't know. Fans, fans are so entitled. These days, man. <laughs> <laughs> yes. The anti-fan pivot is finally here. I've been waiting on this one, dude. It's about time. They've I, gotten off too I easy so, for too I long. So, yeah, they're just going to make a union. Fans union. <laughs> entitled. Entitled. Which has not had anything going on lately. I know, no no I, emails from them recently? No emails from them. I've been checking out their Twitter page occasionally. It's been like a year since they've tweeted. Dude. I, that's really unfortunate because I've been giving them dues for the last year and a half. <laughs> Your Patreon buddy, if you're listening to this, has been going straight to the MLB Fans Union. Um, it sounds like they're ripe for a hostile takeover by you and I. Uh-huh. Let's radicalize the Fans Union. That's right. They started out as this like reactionary conservative union. Union in air quotes. <laughs> and now we could take them and we could start the revolution through the MLB Fans Union. Do you think We've they, already, we already did the minor leagues? Yeah. <laughs> now it's time the for the fans. Do you think the AFL CIO would welcome us? Listen, brother, I'm already in the AFL CIO. Yeah. So I just talked to some just people. Just pull some strings. That's like usually how I'll just send a couple emails. Yep. <laughs> like, I know hey, you have a lot of sway in the executive organization. director <laughs> of the Writers Guild. What do you think about getting behind organizing the MLB fans? Mm-hmm. They'd be like, you guys don't work, <laughs> you don't make anything, <laughs> you don't get paychecks. Which were things that we were saying in the past, but our our mind, our third eye was just not open enough mm-hmm. yet. Yeah, I don't even I, I don't even know what we're talking about. I don't, I don't know. Baseballs hitting to the 
Oh, right. So do you have takes on this? Yeah. He should give Great. the ball back. Yeah. He should, he should give yeah. the ball back. Yeah. Yeah. It's not hard. No. You had a ball and then you give it to the guy because he hit it. Mm-hmm. <laughs> and it's his first one. Now, I'm not above extorting Major League Baseball clubs. Oh, 100%. For, for a little merch. Yeah. Some free tickets. So I think, you know, the value of a, of a first home run ball on the open market, obviously, is fluid. Depends who hit it. Mm-hmm. Depends how good they are. Yeah. <laughs> what can you get back in exchange for that home run ball? I don't know. Is it Barry Bonds' first home run ball? Is it Albert Pujols' 700th home run ball? Or is it Tomas Nito's first home run. No shade to my man Tomas. But I think it's fine to ask for something back. Like, a signed ball by the guy who hit it, obviously. Mm-hmm. Tickets to at least one other game. Yeah. Yep, I think that's fine. Anything beyond that, you're getting a little greedy. <laughs> you're like, can I get a glove? Can I get can a Can I bat? take the field with them? <laughs> can I get a signed jersey? What, you trying to play? <laughs> Just get your signed ball. Get your tickets. Maybe free concessions at the game that you go to with those tickets. <laughs> that would be fine too. Right. You can come to, if you need uh, consulting, if you're trying to work out how to make this negotiation go down, we're tapped in. This is what the union is yeah, for. Yeah, exactly. Please email mlbfansunion at gmail.com. Yeah. That, that redirects to tippingbitchespot <laughs> at gmail.com. <laughs> we're like the Scott Boris of the MLB's fan union, holding out for all, <laughs> all that home run ball is worth. So you're saying that we should treat home run balls like a stock on the open market. Yep. We're trying to predict its value long term. So we might say, hey, this is where it's going to peak. No, it's it's about to plummet. I need to get rid of it now. No, I'm not saying that. Okay. Because you can hold a stock on the open market as long as you want. That's your right as an American. Mm -hmm. You can hold this fake stock for a fake amount of money for a fake company that you never have any contact with. That's what America is founded on. That is what it's founded on. But I think you should have to make your negotiation and deal before you leave the ballpark. Mm-hmm. You can't walk out of there with that ball. Right. And if you do, you try to walk out of there without, without that ball, you should be forced to stay in until you <laughs> negotiate what you want back from it. <laughs> These are just the small common sense changes that we would make as executive directors of the MLB <laughs> Fans Union. <laughs> this is easily one of the most deranged conversations we've ever had. For sure, but I'm never going to stop thinking about this now at the ballpark. I've never caught a baseball. Sounds like you're just not part. built different. Uh, yeah, I'm not. Like me. I am the I one. I caught a Noriyoki foul ball that's straight right, back. You did. Section 422, New well, York Mets. Well, you were. 2018. Well, that's not really fair because you'd been watching Zach Hample's YouTube <laughs> channel for a while then to get those no, tips. See, famously, I didn't know who he was until three weeks ago. Yeah, which again, ignorance is bliss, man. <laughs> ignorance really was bliss. Now I'm going on batting around, having to be asked about <laughs> how to get rid of him. Like, I was just trying to enjoy Foolish Baseball's YouTube content and nobody else. Yeah. <laughs> the only baseball YouTubes I support are Foolish Baseball and Cespedes Family Barbecue. I support the official Major League Baseball YouTube channel. I oh, watch I, all the videos they put out. I mean, no bullshit. <laughs> the abbreviated games are pretty useful. Yeah, they are super useful. Yeah, I, can't yeah. just, I can't watch three hours of baseball every night. Right. I just can't. You need the highlights? I have commitments in my life that mm-hmm. I need to uphold. Yeah. Like being the executive director of the MLB Fans Union. (laughs) Takes a lot of time. You've never caught a ball. No. Have you like finessed one? You know, like have you sat by the bullpen and someone tossed you one before? Uh, I think it's happened maybe at spring training once. And it's happened a bunch at like college games I've gone to. But those don't really 
count for yeah, for our purposes here. Wow, I kind of I kind of want to get you one. I know, me too, dude. Well, I think we just don't sit in the right sections to catch balls. Yeah, we don't sit in the outfield that often. We I sit mean, behind home plate. It's in the nosebleeds because <laughs> we don't have that much money. <laughs> Not yet, but once we catch that foul ball or that home run. Oh, once we start getting dues from the MLB fans. Union. That too. Yeah. I'm just going to beat this joke to death because I'm going to forget about it by next week. So I want to get all of the That's best okay. that I, I can won't. out of my I'll system. I'll never forget. <laughs> uh, if you have a good story of catching a, a home run ball and negotiating what you're owed in exchange for it, please write in tippingpitchespot at gmail.com or you can call in and tell the story in your own voice. 785-422-588. Eight, one. I think that does it for this week's episode of Tipping Pitches, Alex. An eventful one. A very eventful one. For the, rest of, for the rest of history, this dumb bit about the MLB Fans Union will be part of the same episode that the minor league union becoming official was in. That's the only way we could do it. <laughs> we still haven't talked about Taylor Swift's new album. What is there to talk about? Yeah, that's true. That's a good point. Uh, what there is to talk about is that I have some reservations about it. Yeah? Yeah. What? I just don't think it's a good concept for an album. It's a bunch of songs that never made it onto other albums that you've been collectively writing over the last 15 years. Sounds like they weren't good enough to go on the other albums. I just have some <laughs> reservations. I'm not doubting her. My faith is unwavering. Right. But I think that the the packaging of it, not ideal. It's not getting me personally more excited if I wasn't already so excited. You know, it, it's not pulling in the casual viewer. <laughs> we need Rob Manfred to touch it up a little bit. <laughs> Oh, man, we'll get to that one day. Yeah, One when, day. When that's going to be our out. next emergency reaction pod. That's going to be Patreon bonus episode. We've never done one of those. So <laughs> no time like the present. <laughs> Should we start a new feed just for that album? <laughs> Thank you. Speaking of the Patreon to uh, the five members that we will shout out from the Alex Rodriguez VIP club tier. Those five members this week. Five of many. Thank you to all of you. But specifically to these five this week. Eric, Sam, Ben, Ali, and Mike. Alex, we have a, a Patreon live stream of a baseball game coming up soon. Do you want to tell the people when that's going to be? Who is going to be playing in that game? I do. I have all of that information up in front of me right now as we speak. Wow, what a pro. What a pro. Tuesday, September 20th at 6.45 p.m. Eastern Time, the Toronto Blue Jays are playing the Philadelphia Phillies. They're making the trek to Philly just like you once upon a time. That's right. Hopefully they come out less harassed than you did. (laughs) I'm ashamed of millennials everywhere. <laughs> Come watch this with us. We're going to be doing a watch along. We did one of these. Um, we did one of these a month ago. We had a blast. This one we are opening up to all of our Patreon subscribers. And we want you to come join and hang with us. We're going to talk. We're going to have fun. We're going to uh, watch Bryce Harper? Question mark. We're going to talk about milk. Talk again? about milk again, which we did a lot, a lot of, of yeah. like a surprising amount it's of the tight 40 minutes on milk uh-huh. <laughs> um we're gonna be watching this via uh playback which is a streaming service social streaming service that allows you to watch sports games with friends uh go check that out and sign up it's free and uh, in the meantime we'll be sending out more information via the patreon messaging system so keep an eye out for that but uh mark your calendars folks Thank you to everybody for listening to this week's very exciting episode of Tipping Pitches. We will be back next week. Why do I keep running from the truth? All I ever think about is you. You got me hypnotized, so mesmerized.
Everybody, uh, I'm Alex Rodriguez. Tipping pitches. Tipping pitches. This is the one that I love the most. Tipping pitches. So we'll see you next week. See ya.